0: The SaaS Universe podcast is brought to you by Efficient Capital Labs. Realize your future revenue today. In the heart of the SAS Universe, where founders often share tales of software solutions and cloud-based exploits, we find a maverick who bends the rules of the narrative. He is not a SaaS founder, yet his name reverberates throughout the industry. This is Vikash, a titan of the startup world, who has fearlessly navigated the challenging terrains of the business landscape, charting a journey that is inspirational. Vikash's journey is not your typical SaaS founder story, but his path is one that carries valuable lessons for anyone willing to brave the startup landscape. I'm not a SaaS founder,
1: but I have been CEO of multiple startups. And from that perspective, there's relevance because a lot of SaaS founders go through the startup journey themselves. And a number of companies that I'm engaged with now are in the SaaS software domain. I started working with a company called HCL, which is a very large software services company. And HCL moved me to Singapore, and I was there for six years. And during that time, HP actually hired me to manage the regional business for their telecom products. And my responsibility was business development in all of the Asia Pacific country. It was a very exciting time. Young person traveling to 28 countries all the time. And that was also the time mobile carriers were coming up all over Asia. So lots of opportunities in different parts of the region. So we really enjoyed being in Singapore for six years. And I had one of these reviews with my manager. And he asked me, what do you see yourself doing next? And I said, you know, I'd really like to be running a p and And he says, well, those are all in the States. So you'll have to move to California. So HP actually moved me to California in 98. And I came here and became general manager of one of their software businesses uh, at HP. So unlike a lot of successful Indians in the Valley, everybody has a story about how they came to the States with $20 in their pocket. Well, I'll tell you, I have none of those stories. I came here with HP and I was a general manager, the youngest one at the time. And it was a different time at HP, you know. You got company cars and American Express desk and it was a different, different world. And then in 2002, in the midst of the dot-com downturn, when there was absolute carnage in Silicon Valley, I actually left HP to join a startup called p cube uh, against the advice of everybody they they were like what are you thinking this uh, absolute carnage in the startup world and you're leaving a prominent company like hp to join them and uh, my view was really quite simple i said you know when times are good even a monkey can sell it's only when times are really difficult and nothing's again in your favor You separate the weak from the shaft, so to speak. Currently, I sit on the board of five startups, all in different domains. And the common drift across all of them is that they're all bright, exceptionally talented founders, but haven't got the entire spectrum of experiences that one needs to successfully manage startups.
0: Vikash's journey to the Silicon Valley was far from traditional. It was not fueled by the allure of the American dream, nor by the lure of Silicon Valley's tech utopia. Instead, his trajectory was shaped by a singular, audacious ambition. The goal I had set
1: for myself was, I'd like to be the CEO of an international company by the time I'm 40. And now, let's see how we get to that goal and so you start from being a sales rep in mumbai and you manage your way to regional management roles and general management roles and transition from large company to a small company and so it was really the career objective driving where the opportunities were and where i ended up in my career rather than deciding where i want to be and then figuring out what i wanted to do in that place So it was the roles that got me from Mumbai to Singapore, Singapore to California. And those roles were the ones that were the milestones that one was targeting at different points in life.
0: Vikash had transitioned from a corporate setting to a startup in 2002, an environment starkly different from his previous experiences at Hewlett Packard. There has been skepticism in the startup's board and founder regarding his adaptability to a more hands-on, less resource-rich environment, typical of startups. Their biggest concern in hiring me was,
1: uh, here's a guy who's the general manager at Chiller Packard. He's used to company cars and corporate American Express desk and a private secretary. Will he be able to even function in a startup environment where you basically do everything yourself you've got none of the above and so from their perspective they honestly were very skeptical and sort of almost assumed that i join be utterly disappointed within the first week and leave after that <laughs> So it was sort of bracing themselves so oh my god this guy is not really going to stick around because none of the trappings that they assumed one was one couldn't function without were there in a and for me when you come from a country like india when you walk into a room you flick the switch when i was there there was no guarantee the lights were going to come on and so you always clipped a flashlight handy and candles handy. and You filled your bucket of water before you went to work. So you didn't take anything for granted. So when you come from that sort of mental makeup, it's easy to transitioning to a startup where you roll up your sleeves and you've got to do everything properly and by yourself. And so that despite skepticism of the board and the founder, For me the transition wasn't very difficult because I was quite happy rolling up the sleeves and doing everything by oneself. The second thing which became very evident to me when I joined the company, when you have market conditions that just simply do not favor you in any way, every competitor is much bigger, you have a finite amount of cash which is running out rather quickly Every customer is trialing your product and telling you what a great thing you have, but also telling you they have no budget and will not buy. And you have a board who, at every meeting, is turning around and saying, we just closed 8 out of 10 companies in my portfolio. You're up next. So unless something miraculous happens, we better start the wind down operation. And so, you know, to work in that sort of environment, it's kind of intense because on one hand, you're trying to put together a part to making the company successful. And then it's like one of these movies where the ticker of the bomb is going down and you're watching it and you don't want it to hit zero, right? So it's, it's kind of an intense time at the time. Yes, the US market was particularly impacted. The whole market had gone to hell. And so my message to the team was that uh, we're doing everything right. We're engaging with the customer. We are trialing the product. We are 5x better than anything else in the market. But the reality is no business is going to happen. And so one of the hardest things I've ever done in my career, we laid off the entire team for doing everything we asked them to do. The reason was you had to preserve the cash and you had to shift the focus to where the business would be. And it's a very hard thing because the team is doing an exceptional job and they're doing exactly what you asked them to do. And for that, they're being let go. But it's one of those hard decisions. One has to make the company survive. What it did was, is preserve the cash for the company. And then what we did was, we found the one market that was actually buying. And in our case, it was Japan, because the Japanese government decided to use broadband investments to stimulate the economy. And so the single market on earth that was buying was Japan. The only problem was, the company had never done business in Japan. We didn't have an office. We didn't have an employee. People would find it difficult to find it on a map. I mean, it was that dire. But the way I looked at it is, those are problems we can solve. Those are in my control. The problem I can't solve is the way the market is behaving. So the US market, I can't change the market. So we have to let the team go. You know, you have to not only make the hard decision of uh, cutting people and costs and so forth, but you also need to have a well thought out strategy and approach to get to where the business is actually going to
0: come from. Vikash emphasizes on a top-down approach when it comes to making drastic decisions, such as laying off the entire team. He began by getting the board's approval, providing a detailed plan, not only about cost-cutting measures, but also articulating the future direction of the company, in their case shifting focus to the Japanese market. Once the board approved the plan, the next step was to discuss it with the management team he mentions three types of reactions he expected from the team. When you're
1: removing almost everybody from the company, uh, the immediate benefit is obviously uh, you'll have cost savings and such. But then you've also completely incapacitated the company. You can't do anything. So the question then becomes, what are you going to do? Getting to Japan? Whom are we working with? Where are we in terms of the partnership discussion? What is the pipeline of customers that we're going to approach, and so forth. And once you turn around and articulate and get buy-in from the board level, then starts the next step, which is talking to the management team. And the executive team will obviously react. You'll get three reactions. One is, of course, of anger. You asked me to do this, and I did it exactly as, but perhaps better than what you asked me to. And for that, you're telling me, Uh, You're going to let me go. It just seems downright unfair. And it is unfair, but that's the need of the hour. Uh, So that's one reaction. The second reaction is those who weren't laid off are now thinking, oh my God, am I next? So you now have anxiety with the ones who, you know, are still in the company. And then, of course, the last, is disillusionment where you're thinking, okay, this is step one, and it's really just a slow death and it's a matter of shutting down. So, unless you are able to very clearly articulate why we're doing this, why the rest of the people are there for a reason, and we expect them to deliver on certain attributes and certain milestones, and a very strong view of what exactly we are going to do that gives them confidence that there is a path forward and light at the end of the tunnel for the company. And all of that has to be tied in very quickly. A lot of times companies make the mistake of doing one thing really well, but then you create unnecessary anxiety and you'll have people leaving and, uh, and so forth. So it has to be a well choreographed event without which you have nothing but disasters.
0: At some point, Vikash found himself at the crossroads of his career. His achievements with three successful startups positioned him as a seasoned entrepreneur, and he could have easily decided to embark on launching another 10. However, his path led him somewhere unexpected, but equally fulfilling, mentorship.
1: How I got into mentoring and board was that, you know, Once you are fully consumed as CEO, navigating your company against all odds, which is what most startups end up doing, and it's all-consuming. So you rarely put up your head and see what is happening around you. You're just completely focused in every aspect of your company's business. And then what happened is we had some family and friends coming to me and asking them, to talk to their child who are all growing up because, you know, all my friends' kids are all finishing college and getting into the workforce and advising them. And some of them had kind things to say about the counsel and advice I gave them. And so my takeaway was, hmm, somebody actually thinks this is valuable. <laughs> wants to listen to me? So that was, you know, interesting. And then some of them wanted internships. And so I I would offer internships in the companies I was running. And I realized these were massively impactful for youngsters. And then once I started talking to other founders, what I found a common drift across all of them they're all young, they're all bright, exceptionally passionate about their product and their domain, but they struggle with certain business aspects of go to market and going to get into markets that they're not familiar with, Uh, fundraising, uh, not knowing how to interact with the investor community and understanding the motivations of the investor community, not understanding the dynamics of channels and partners in different parts of the world. And in some cases, they're in love with the technology, but they don't fully understand how the roadmap can make it a much wider, bigger play. So a lot of the product positioning aspects. And for me, there's a certain depth in each one of these domains because one has handled it personally over the last 15, 20 years. And so suddenly I would have an opinion on pretty much everything, you know. And as a consequence, the first was a company based out of Gurgaon, And they came to me and said, would you come on board as their board member and counsel and guide us as we navigate through. And so I joined their startup. And next thing you know, the word of mouth, because by and large, I tend to be a fairly private person. I don't go around thumping my chest about anything. I don't even have a Facebook account to give you an idea of how private I am. So for me, it was more of a word of mouth kind of thing. You know, One founder talking to another and somebody saying, you've got a problem, go
0: talk to Vikash, he'll he'll be able to navigate you. While Vikash understood the excitement and opportunities that came with startup culture, he was also acutely aware of the potential pitfalls that accompany them. Vikash was optimistic about India's potential in the tech industry, even suggesting it could become the AI center of the world. He believed in the necessity of not just dreaming big, but also understanding what it takes to play well within the domain. With his wise and measured perspective, he advised young startups to be strategic with their investments, focusing on differentiation, precision, and solving problems that customers need to solve. This prudent approach, he reasoned, was the key to surviving and thriving in the rapidly evolving technological landscape.
1: Recently, the CEO of OpenAI was in India, Sam Altman, and uh, he made a comment, which uh, obviously the Indian media and the tech industry uh, sort of got all bent out of shape on. You know? And he said something to the effect of that, we've done a lot of investment in training our models and such. And to do a look-alike of chat TV is a hopeless exercise because it's too far a gap to bridge kind of thing. And it was interpreted as that, well, you're doubting the abilities of the tech industry in India. And that was not the, I didn't read it as that at all. What he was saying is that a startup with $10 million just will not even be able to afford the computing power and access to data to train the model to even give a sensible answer. If you look at OpenAI's numbers, they lose $580 million a year, you lose that much money because that's the infrastructure investment that goes into training models and to be able to get the kind of responses that ChatGPT can give you. And this is over lots of years of training the model. So. You really can't have an emotional reaction of, you know, there has to be a reality check to say, in AI, everybody has algorithms. The critical thing is access to data. And what kind of data do you have to train the models? And that's the big thing that, and if somebody has a lead, they have a lead. What, What are you going to do about it? So I think it's one of those things where you've got to Once again, due expectation, and I'm sure there'll be hundreds and thousands of companies coming out of India which are leveraging technologies like this, and I'm sure it'll be the AI center of the world. But when you walk into a domain, you have to understand what it takes to play. You cannot get your high school tennis game and go to an ATP match and expect to survive. You're going to get wiped out. So It doesn't work, and that's the thing. A startup may have raised $10 million, but if your competitors are billion-dollar companies, please understand, you're smaller than their food and beverage budget. So you have to be very clever about how you use your $10 million and navigate through. And it's all about differentiation, all about precision, all about solving a problem that a customer has to solve.
0: Vikash found himself delving into the deceptive world of startup funding. He pondered upon the existing narrative that equates a startup success to the level of its valuation, essentially suggesting that achieving the unicorn status signifies success. Vikash questioned this idea, pointing out that raising funds to boost valuation or excess capital without a clear value-driven intent were not necessarily indicators of true success. Silicon Valley is run by venture capitalists.
1: So they're the ones who control the narrative. And what is their single purpose in life? Investing money. So the narrative they've created is you, Mr. Startup, are successful based on the amount of money you raise, not on your personal ownership. So as a consequence, the startups have bought into the Kool-Aid that i got to raise a boatload of money Now, here is the root reality then. The more money you come in, it comes in from late-stage investors. People who write bigger checks, that money comes with terms, it comes with preferences, and it comes with seniority. What does that mean? You go further back in line. The root reality is a founder who started the company, built it from scratch, and by the time you get to series C or D, Most of them have less than 10% of the company. And the reason is you've given it all away because of the the losing show. So you see a lot of CEOs who've been replaced with the CEOs that have come from the coterie of the primary investor. And if you look at his background, he's probably the investor in another successful company in that BC's portfolio. And so there's a narrative that's got created. People are buying into it. What they don't realize is that raising a very large round of funding does come with immense amount of dilution, lots of preferences, and lots of seniority. I'm seeing companies announcing, oh, there is 250 million, of which 100 million is debt, and 150 million is equity. Well, debt stands senior to even the equity. And so, as a consequence, you know, you're working, you're giving up your intellectual property to service somebody else's debt, money that you didn't need, giving them a very high interest of 14, 15% or whatever it is, right? And you've diluted yourself to be just a nominal shareholder. They'll give you lip service until it's convenient for them. And after that, you get replaced. So the point is the smart, founders realize and strike the balance take what is required try and fund the operation from what you're what you're getting ads revenue and cash flow because of this narrative lots of companies are being set up for disaster and there's another trend you'll find a lot of early stage investors cash out by the time you get to later stage so they, you will also hear the company raised $300 million, but off the $300 million, 150 was secondary sale, which means basically some new investor came in and bought out earlier investors. So they've already made their money. And that money didn't even go to the company. Because you only got a portion of that large amount that was invested. So. My belief is it's not the amount of money you raise, but really choosing and deciding on just the appropriate amount that you need for that stage of the company. Be judicious about using that amount of money. Hit your milestones. In hitting your milestones, you'll automatically raise your valuation. And then once again, take an appropriate amount of money. And if you don't do that, then it also causes bad behavior, because it gives you a false sense of security that you have so much in the bank. And so if you miss your numbers or if you miss your milestones, it's okay. But you as a startup need to realize the rest of the world is moving. If you're standing still, you've already fallen way far behind. So as a startup, you have to be running at the front of the back. And you can't have artificial sense of security created by a large bank balance. The, the hunger has to be there, the sense of anxiety has to be there that forces you to do reach for that additional milestone. I mean, if you're going to become so flushed with cash that you don't know what to do, you'll obviously be, become lazy. That's human nature.
0: The process of funding a startup can be compared to the cultivation of grapes. Much like grapevines, startups required a delicate balance of resources. Giving a startup too much funding could be likened to overwatering a grapevine, causing it to lose its distinct flavor. On the other hand, insufficient funding, like underwatering, could lead to the startup's demise. What was required was a fine balance that fostered a level of struggle while also providing enough sustenance to thrive. the only people in this whole equation who are making money are the investors
1: and you're kind of shortchanging your co-founders and your employees because you've just trivialized them. And the only thing you got was bragging rights and some media write-up on a large round of financing that you did but money that you didn't really need. So it's gotta be brilliant in the way how the narrative has been crafted, that people actually start
0: believing that that's a measure of success. It's pretty clear that Vikash's insights into the startup landscape are not only profound, but also thought provoking. Throughout the conversation, Vikash provided a unique perspective, challenging the common narratives of success while sharing the hard truths about startup funding and growth. He emphasized the importance of balance in funding and equity retention and cautioned against buying into the seductive narrative of raising more money as a sign of success. Vikash highlighted the need for startups to maintain a sense of struggle that drives innovation and keeps complacency at bay. It was a sobering reminder that while startup fundraising can appear glitzy and glamorous, the reality can be much more complex and fraught with challenges. Moreover, Vikash's insights into the potentially disruptive impact of generative AI are a clarion call to startups. The need for continuous innovation, relevance to the customer and product differentiation is more critical than ever. It's a reminder that raising large sums of money is not a panacea for success. On the contrary, it can mask deep-seated issues and engender complacency. Our conversation with Vikash paints a realistic and cautionary picture of the startup ecosystem. It offers valuable lessons for founders, investors and even casual observers of the industry. It's a deep dive into the nuances of startup funding, the disruption posed by AI and the balancing act required to sustain and grow a startup. We're grateful to Vikash for his candid insights and the wealth of wisdom he brought to the table, making this podcast a truly enlightening experience. That's all for today, folks. Thank you for tuning in to the SAS Universe podcast. And remember, if you're looking for non-dilutive capital to help grow your business, Efficient Capital Labs is here to help. With their unique approach, you can receive up to 60% of your projected revenue as upfront capital, and all within just three days. So don't wait. Head to www.ecaplabs.com to learn more and get started today. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the show.